Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush, and we're talking about what you need to know about protecting your digital assets. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Elizabeth Faist, an attorney with Sutherland, Putnam Smith, a partner with Lipscomb Johnson, and Jim Doherty, a director in the Technology Services Department at Bennett Thrasher. I'd like to ask our guests to start by giving us a brief overview of themselves and their practices and businesses. Elizabeth, let's start with you. Good morning. I'm Elizabeth Feast. I'm an associate at Sutherland, Asbill, and Brennan. I've been with um, Sutherland for about five years, and I practice in estate planning, estate administration, and charitable giving. I uh, before I began with Sutherland, I started my career in Sarasota, Florida, and I maintain my Florida bar license. And what about you, Jim? Morning. My name is Jim Doherty. I'm director at Bennett Thrasher in their technology services division. I've been doing IT consulting for a little over 10 years now, and we help businesses with everything IT related, whether it's more CIO level uh, concerns or just day-to-day help desk issues. Uh, we took, like, take over everything, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. You take over everything. <laughs> everything, yeah. Putnam, tell us about your practice. I'm in the takeover business. <laughs> I'm a commercial real estate lawyer, uh, buy and sell businesses, and uh, work with, with entrepreneurs. Uh, I've been practicing corporate and business law for, golly, 30, 35 years or thereabouts. Um, I work at Lipscomb Johnson in Cumming, Georgia, uh, just north of the city. God's country. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start off with, so our topic is digital assets. And Elizabeth said before the show, when I was peppering her with very difficult questions, says that the first thing that most of her clients say when she talks about digital assets is that I don't have any. And she told me with a smile, they're absolutely wrong. <laughs> so why don't we start off with what are digital assets? I guess I'll start. Digital assets are are those intangible assets that you keep generally in um, a a non-tangible form. So those can include photos, videos you make, but it also includes all the email correspondence that you have um, in your email accounts. And the digital assets can be held in a form that's on online, or they can be held in a form that's on like a disk or, um, or a drive that you have that's not um, actually stored in a online. And when you're talking about digital assets, do people also include the concept of sort of digital access to their real assets? For instance, you've got an investment account or a bank account, but you don't get paper statements anymore and you only access that online. Right, so the digital asset is that communication that you have with the bank or, an, or a statement, but the underlying asset is still a separate separate asset. So the digital asset is the correspondence that you have or the account statement itself and the information in that uh, in that form, but there's still this separate underlying asset as well. And let, let's kind of separate out and then we'll kind of talk. I'm, I'm thinking kind of, for me, when you have a bank account, even though you have online access, the bank account's kind of a normal asset, maybe a, a pain in the rear, but you're going to get access to it ultimately if 
you're incapacitated or, or you're deceased, your estate can. And the same thing with discs if they're still available <laughs> or if they're at your house. So if you can turn on someone's computer and you can have, that's good. But where we seem to see the most difficulty is what I would refer to probably incorrectly as iCloud assets, things that aren't residing on your own computer. Is, is, is my distinctions fair? Yes? Yeah. No? I think absolutely. I think you've got, you've probably got three, three issues to think about. One, the underlying asset, the bank account, the deposit. Okay, that's easy. The digital asset is the electronic communication. The third issue is the device. You've got to give people permission to use the devices to access the digital assets. And there is a distinction, just so you know, our, our audience knows, between giving your password while you're living and giving your password for use after you've, you've deceased. During your living, whether it's stupid or not, and Jim can tell about it, you can give your password to anybody and they can use it. Once you are incapacitated, once you are, once you're deceased, someone using your password that you may live, you know, list next to your computer, that's actually computer hacking. You can't use a password once you're dead. It's kind of the concept that you can't do anything after you're dead. <laughs> so let's kind of talk about the iCloud stuff. I'm not quite sure I understand how much people keep thing on the iCloud. So talk a little bit, Jim, about the kinds of things we are in today's world storing. And I highlight for you the difference between that you mentioned before we started between five years ago and today, and what would be the difference between today and and the, and the nano world a year from now. Well, that's that's a great point in that a lot of it is moving to the cloud, which is sort of a, a general vague term, but it really just means a server somewhere that's not in front of you, um, in a data center somewhere. And a lot of the major vendors are moving to a cloud-based model because for them, it just makes more sense. And I think for just the consumer, it makes a lot of sense too, um, rather than keeping track of, like you said, a USB drive or a bunch of CDs or floppy disks, if you still have those thumb drives. I mean, who here hasn't lost a thumb drive? It's just easier to click upload and now it's safe and sound on a server somewhere. But like you alluded to, how do we get access to that after you're gone if you haven't given someone the password information? And some of those services do have protocols in place where if you can prove that you're of you know, direct relation to that person, then they will reset the account. Uh, Facebook, for instance, will put the account in memoriam where you can't <clears throat> access the account, but you can still post to it. So Facebook's official stance is, we will never give anyone access to your account under under any circumstances. Um, so it's, I think the most important thing is, no matter what you're using, do some research ahead of time and make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into, just like you would with any any other contract, um, because that's essentially kind of what you're getting yourself into. But to more directly answer your question, just about everything is is in the cloud now. Your bank, photos, email, files, everything. Um, credit card transactions. I mean, it's, it's all up there. And I'll give you a simple example. Lots of people now use Google Docs or the equivalent where their only original is actually stored in the cloud so that they can access it from anywhere except when they can't. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, b before you pass away, and, and we talked about how you, you can give someone else um, access to your accounts. What, what is your all advice about um, storing usernames and passwords? There's services designed to do just that. So I was, as I was doing some research on this, there's actually 
new companies starting to help people plan for an event just like this, where they can put all of their digital assets in one spot and then give a fiduciary access to that one location instead of having to give them their iTunes password, their Gmail password, their Wells Fargo password. You give them this one account password and that unlocks sort of the, the kingdom, if you will. That's one example. Other examples are just password security apps where you can save all of your other passwords for those types of services. And then again, you have sort of the one master password to get you into that app. Obviously, if you forget that password or don't write it down properly or give it to the person improperly, you have a problem. But it does simplify the process if you can just keep everything in one spot. And there's tons and tons of apps available that, that do that. Let's put you on the spot. We've got three guests. How many people use that type of app? One. <laughs> <laughs> I was well, going to say, our... I'm, I'm much more cautious than that. I, I tell people, A, you have digital assets, and they say, well, give me an example, and I'll give them 10 examples, and they begin to scratch their heads and say, gee, I've got a lot. And then I say, now we need a comprehensive inventory, and I tell them to keep it on paper. Where? Where do they put that piece of paper? In their desk, usually. <laughs> but the you reason, could say safe deposit box, but you know, no, the reason, that's not accessible. The reason I ask that is, you know, a thief comes in, they're going to steal your computer. You know, they're going to steal whatever is valuable or someone comes into your office. Aren't they going to look on your desk to see if they can find the passwords? Under the keyboard is another popular Under spot. the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, when I think about the internet, I, I just think that anything can be hacked. The thief is on the internet. He's not in my house. Well, that thief is more sophisticated, but there's the lower level thief. Fill in the disgruntled neighbor, gardener, son, <laughs> wife uh, before, you know, there's there's people that want to get in that are less sophisticated. I can tell that you litigate. <laughs> <laughs> These are the things I worry about at night. <laughs> well, that or just some type of a, a fire or flood at the house that ruins paper documents. I mean... Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying that the cloud is the magic bullet for all of this. I think certainly having a hard copy backup is never never a bad idea. But some of the advantages to some of these password security apps is if you can set up a secondary user, that person can be contacted in the event that you can't get into the account. They can send an email to another family member saying, hey, you're authorized to reset the password for this account. So even if no one wrote down the password necessarily, there's still a way to get in through a, a secondary user. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about you know how you can use the apps, whether it be you know Facebook or whatever kind of those apps. But before we do, tell me because this is, I find odd when I look at the people who manage the iCloud accounts, there's a real emphasis on privacy. You're not going to get anything, and somebody lets you in. But when you think about normal law of estates and guardians and everything else, it's kind of the opposite. It's you're the person if you have authority, and it's a much more broad access. So before we get into how you make the decision, why should our listeners want people to even have access to some of this information? Well, under normal circumstances, I think you wouldn't, but I think this is just prudent planning. Again, you don't necessarily want someone getting into your bank account or your personal photos unless you know, you're okay sharing them and, and things like that, but I would say... 99% of the time, it's not something you just want to give out to somebody, which I think going through the proper legal channels is, is the best way to do it, to make sure that your lawyer is the only person that can disseminate that information to people you say is okay to give it to. It seems to me, though, that, that as we move into a more um, information-drenched kind of society, 
more and more of our information is going to end up online. For example, health information. Mm -hmm. You know, I want my spouse, I want my kids to be able to manage my health if I'm incapacitated. And the the problem, of course, is you don't know when you're going to be incapacitated. So I or li- li- that's exactly why you need a management right, that's plan today. <laughs> but I was reading uh, a statistic recently about life insurance and disability insurance. Life insurance actually is rarely used because people let it lapse or they buy term. So your likelihood of dying prematurely is very low, like less than 1%. Your likelihood of being disabled for a period of time is over 70%. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing your wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with attorney Elizabeth Faist of Sutherland, attorney Putnam Smith from Lipscomb Johnson, and Jim Doherty, a director in the technology services department of Bennett Thrasher. So let's go and ask the question. We're now sitting at our computer we are willing to realize that someone's told us like Putnam or Jim or, or Elizabeth, you know, bad things do happen to good people. So you need to think about who you want to have access. And now you're going to tell us how to do it. And before we get into the legal ways, what are the options on the various uh, websites, the common ones that we're using, whether they be, and I'll say them wrong and my children will laugh, <laughs> Snapshot or Tumblr <laughs> or whatever ones they now use that I'm not allowed that turn secret on your calculator, or the more common ones like Facebook or LinkedIn or Google or anything else? Well, that's a great question. And it, again, goes back to do some research ahead of time before, if you're not using Snapchat, find out what their terms of service are. Same for Facebook and Gmail and some of these other online applications because they're all different. There's not one set of standards for everybody to abide by in that situation. So some of them don't have like Snapchat, I'm, I didn't look it up, but I'm, I, I'm guessing that they don't have a way to enable a secondary user because their whole premise is as soon as you send it, it's gone. So there's really nothing to get access to. Um, so, so I, I just revealed my ignorance. Snapchat probably wasn't a great example, but uh, like your Instagram account, which is photo sharing app that doesn't delete it unless you want it to. So again, all those apps have different terms of service. So dig into it and read a little bit. They're, they can be extensive, but at least you'll know what your options are in the event something like that happens. Yeah, a, a great example is Google. The, um, they, they have their policy up on their website. And, and for example, they say, uh, if you need access to the Gmail content of an individual who has passed away, in rare cases, we may be able to provide the contents of the Gmail account to an authorized representative of a deceased person. Nothing about disability. It goes on to say, At Google, we're keenly aware of the trust users place in us, and we take our responsibility to protect the privacy of people who use Google services very seriously. And all we have to do is look at the Apple dispute with the FBI to to realize conceptually what it is. Sure. It's a perfect example. So, okay, so you get onto it, and let's really talk about adults for a minute. When do you get to make this election, or how do you make this election on the system? Because you know, many of us have signed up a long time ago. Maybe we're signing up now. But candidly, I don't have any memory of having seen any of these questions. It's usually a small checkbox that no one pays attention to when you sign up for the email address or the online account where you check, yeah, yes, I agree to your terms of service. And then you move forward with signing up for the awesome new music streaming or whatever you just wanted to, to start playing around with. Checking that box is agreeing to whatever service terms like like you just mentioned, that uh, they deem irrelevant to their service. So that's all it takes is the checkbox or clicking I agree or I accept. And every once in a while, 
Apple, for instance, will occasionally have updates to their service terms. And then the next time you sign into iTunes, a little thing pops up saying, hey, we changed our terms of service. But some people might read the whole thing. Most people just click, yep. And then now they're back into iTunes. So. And even if you read the whole thing, um, and if you disagree with some of it, your option is to not sign up or, or to check the use box. It or not use it. You're not going to call uh, Apple and try and get them to change their terms of service. But, and but you've, you've mentioned that um, you know all of these service providers have different terms. Elizabeth, are there any sort of trends in, in the law that is, are we going toward more privacy, less privacy? Um, do all the states and the federal government, we all have different laws that we're looking at? Initially, in the past 10 years, there's been a trend for, for all of these relationships to be governed by this terms of service agreement that, uh, that Jim mentioned. And that agreement generally just governs between the account owner and the custodian, and you've agreed to whatever contract was available. The Uniform Law Commission decided that there were issues with these terms of service agreements because fiduciaries had um, needed access for certain reasons. Like and, and define for our for our audience what a fiduciary is. And a fiduciary is a person who has. Um, that's a difficult question for someone who often deals with fiduciary. <laughs> fiduciary is someone who has um, a duty to another person in order to act on their behalf, generally um, as either an agent, an executor a trustee or a conservator. Those are sort of the most common examples. So these fiduciaries often have a necessity to manage um, or access these accounts. And they were realizing that the terms of service agreements often upon death or incapacity, either there weren't governing terms or the terms of service agreements said that the account automatically terminated and no one had access. So there was this trend um, in the Uniform Law Commission decided that um, there needed to be um, another option. And there, the Uniform Law Commission came out with the Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act, so UFADA. Flows trippingly <laughs> off the tongue. <laughs> it's <Yes>. wonderful. <laughs> and, and they took the position of our normal fiduciary default, which is the fiduciary steps into the shoes of the user, has full access. There was this sort of privacy off um, trend that said the fiduciary has the ability to access everything. As you can imagine, the Facebooks and Yahoo's and Googles of the world didn't didn't like this. So, they um, that that law never had any traction in any of the states. I think there's only one that adopted an, an initial version, and I think it was Delaware. Usually, they're the ones to jump on the the bandwagon first. And so, there were there were three main concerns that the that the tech industry had. One of which was that. There was this issue of consent. There was no implicit consent by the user for another person to access this information. They were concerned about privacy and they were concerned about contract rights and the violation of other privacy online accounts. When, when I was reading about this, when, when we see the disputes with the Googles and Facebooks of the world, though they articulate that as their reason, what they tend to do is fall back on that they would be breaking the law. Right. And they rely on the uh, Federal Communications Act to say that they can't use the privacy. And so we seem to be having a weird argument that's not really on point. Right. And their default was to, they introduced the Privacy Expectations Afterlife Choices Act, which is called PEACE. So now you see that the technology industry is much better at acronyms than we are. Um, <laughs> and, and this one was more, this was the direct opposite, the privacy off. And it was a complete recognition of privacy rights. It only permitted an executor, so there had to be a deceased person to access the account, but it involved a, a court process. They wanted the earth. The technology industry wanted this intermediary to determine that this was an appropriate access um, of assets. And in that case, did the principal still have to consent? So in other words, 
if the principal didn't say, when I die, I want an executor to get it, could the executor still get it? Yes, they could, but they had to provide a legitimate reason for needing the access, either to to, to find financial assets or to preserve memories, or that this was the only option they had to find an asset or to preserve a memory. That wasn't well received either by the Uniform Law Commission. So everyone came back together last summer in 2015 to do uh, a revision of the Uniform Law. It's now RUFADA is where we are. So the revised Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act. And this is more of a compromise. So now there's a tiered process that um, first, it's the online tool that we talked about. So these are the legacy contacts or the... um, the trusted person, Google Inactive Account Manager, that's the priority. So if a person decides to use the online tool, then that will be given the greatest deference. The second is then um, whether the person provided consent to this person, either in a document or, um, or explicitly on this online tool. If there is no consent, then we get into a, a we're parsing between content and um, and other digital assets. And we can get into more details, but the idea is that you, you want to provide explicit consent to someone, especially when it involves the content of your electronic communication, so the actual body of your email. A lot of times, the companies are really willing to give you a to-from subject line, sort of a catalog of what you've sent. And that, for, for many financial assets, is enough to say, okay, I have a Bank of America account. Look, can't see the balance, but I know that they were receiving correspondence. Where the issue is, is the content, is whether you want that email to your husband or your daughter to be available to that trusted person. And that's when you get, you have a few more safeguards that are available to the company and require a more, a higher level of explicit ex, uh, content or consent. And so that, that, that RUFADA is, has now been enacted in 11 states and in the, in 2016 has been introduced in 17 others. Just and, for our audience, is Georgia one of them? Not yet, <laughs> but <laughs> there's um, there's a trust code committee um, that is working on, among other things, trust code revisions, but it anticipates the introduction of RUFADA in the 2017 um, legislative ses- session. And so I think it's something that everyone needs to start educating before we, we go too far. And I do Just wanna so- remind everybody that we're a very mobile society. So just by the fact that you live in Georgia today doesn't necessarily mean what's going to happen in the future. And I think there's going to be conflicts when you deal with the Googles of the world as to what law applies. So even though you're sitting here in Georgia, Amazon.com or whomever may say Delaware law applies or New Jersey law applies or some other law applies. Craig, isn't it ultimately federal, though? Maybe. Don't, don't you think that this issue needs to be resolved on a federal level, given the, the, the Stored Communications Act and the Consumer Fraud and Abuse Act? Well, has the federal government and, uh, said that yet? Because otherwise, you could do anything you want. Are you advocating it, or are you saying you think that's the law? Well, those, those acts create federal crimes, you know, computer hacking. Uh, and it seems to me that state law is a wonderful thing, but but as I remember the rules, federal law trumps. And it seems to me to have a uniform solution that's nationwide, it probably should be federal. Well, I think what's difficult is that traditionally the, the governance of fiduciaries has been state-based. State law. <laughs> so I think that's where the idea being that there would be a consensus on these uniform laws, and we're seeing that as a huge trend, it would be nice if everyone adopted the RUFADA just so we're all in the same playing field. And I think that's the best option presented. 
at the moment. So let's go back to the tools. Jen, tell us a little bit actually how the tools work. So I had already asked, you know, when do you see it? And the answer was kind of, you might see it when you open up. I'm going to give a suggestion that I actually do for certain things, but then I really want to understand. I actually have an annual date that's not the tax date that comes up on my calendar, probably iCloud based, <laughs> that tells me to confirm things. You know, have I updated my insurance? Have I re renewed my, uh, my radio, what do you call it? XM radio, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And it just reminds, have I renewed my car tag? And you could put on there, which I haven't. Have I looked at the privacy stuff <laughs> or have I renewed my will? You could put it in the same place, but that's just a suggestion. But tell us how we go about doing it. We, we, so, uh, someone in our audience now says, yes, I'd like to think about it. No, I'm not going to hire a lawyer, but I'd like to go look. What do they do? Well, the best place to start is ironically the internet. Um, so just like you said, Google a term like Facebook terms of service. And the first two or three links that pop up will be Facebook's terms of service. Um, same for any service you use, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, uh, Charles Schwab. And generally their terms of service are readily available on their website. Uh, so their websites are also great places to start. And they will, I mean, that's, that's them. And when you click the agree button, those are the terms you're agreeing to. So just start going on their website, or again, just do a quick Google search for the services you use already. And generally the first one or two results will be what you're looking for. Is there a place like on, on an iPhone, I was shocked to find out if you go to the privacy setting, almost everybody has location on and we can find out everything in the world. Is there a way or a place like that's on the, I don't know what the right word is, but at the top of the page that says manage account or privacy that you can click on routinely and change as you want to? Uh, that it it varies unfortunately by the service. I mean, each website's laid out differently, so there's not. I can't tell you. Yeah, go to their website and click on this button every time, but you will have to dig around a little bit. That's why I think using the search engine is a little bit easier because it will generally take you directly to that page as opposed to trying to dig through their website and see if it's under about us or is it under contact us or is it under the legal page. I mean, it, it could be anywhere. Has anybody in this room actually created a cheat sheet that tells us for the biggies? what we should do, or is that something one of us should do when we go home? There's no, there's no cheat sheet. I think yeah, <laughs> Google's the cheat sheet, unfortunately, in this case. Well, I think, and I think Google's tool, at least from when I've looked at, you know, Microsoft, Yahoo, et cetera, that Google's inactive account, inactive account manager is by far the most comprehensive that I've seen. It allows you to say, and I think also it's because Google's a little more comprehensive than just email. It includes those photo sharing, Picasa, et cetera, has a, I think the the best uh, currently online tool and allows you to check boxes over what uh, you want shared with your trusted person and when. And hopefully this will be the trends that it's something that is easy to find and um, easy to say who and what um, should be shared. And Google allows you to name up to, I think, 10 people, right, who can be trusted. Right. To, right. Yeah. So it's not just one and you have to keep track of who that person is. And, you know, next year, do you still trust him or her? <laughs> You're listening to Wealth Matters, a radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenging and preserving the challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Millie Bombush and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowich Frankel. We're talking to Elizabeth Face with Sutherland, uh, Putnam Smith with Lipscomb Johnson, Jim Doherty with Bennett Thrasher. Uh, one question I want to ask is, so we go to the tools and we've got all of these options. And I find like when choosing colors for a room, if I have more than three options, I'm overwhelmed <laughs> and I don't really know what to choose. 
Um, I imagine if I go to this tool, which I'm going to go uh, do when I get home, I'm going to be similarly overwhelmed. Why would what? Tell us what somebody should be thinking about why they would want access. And I'd like to distinguish between access while you are capable and alive versus access when you're disabled or deceased. Why would anyone even want to think about it? Well, I mean, let's face it. A lot of people put important information in their Gmail or their Google email or their AOL account or whatever email service you use, Yahoo. You put a lot of important information in there, old bills, uh, tax returns get emailed to you. I mean, uh, a lot of accountants email or use some type of electronic portal now to send you your return instead of by physical mail. So, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, our lives are in our email accounts. And that's where um, there's a reason why hackers start with your personal email account. The director of the CIA, they got into his AOL account, and that's how he got hacked. Um, this is where there's a lot of really important information about you in an email account. And I think Elizabeth's point about access to not just the subject line and the email address in the message, but the actual content of the message is important because that's really where the, you know, you're going to flesh out all the details about the message. You know, is it, there's the return in an email attachment. You're not going to get much just from the subject line, but really in the body of the email is where there's going to be a lot of detail. So this is why you would need, I would want and need access to someone's email account, for instance, is because they're going to have a lot of important information in there, most likely. So, so one of the things, and I'm a lawyer, I'm making a list. So one of the things you've listed is financial information. This seems really to lean towards when you're not capable of, of, of handling things yourself or and therefore you want someone to access it. It kind of leans the other way, though. Why would you want people while you're alive and capable to access your financial um, is there a way to distinguish that? I don't know if there's a way. Some services will offer, um, or Google, for instance, um, will tell you the last time your account was used or the last place your account was used. So you can go into your history and see, oh, Millie signed into my Gmail account yesterday. I gave her authorization to, but I'm still around and still able to check it myself. I'm not sure why she needed to be in there. Um, so you can monitor who's having access. You can. And there's some apps that will alert you if someone else has signed into your account, even if you've given that person access to you still want to know when, whether it's your lawyer or a family member has, has signed in. Um, but again, it's taking ownership of it, right? So it's not going to turn itself on in most cases. You've got to go in and do the research and see, where do I find out this information? Where do I turn on that alert? And then make a point to stay on top of it. And this, these are the same issues, though, that we had sort of before technology. If you wanted, uh, you know, you're elderly and you want someone to help you with your bank account, you either trust a son or daughter and you put their name on the account or you don't. So it seems to me that some of these same issues apply. If you if you give someone access to your financial data and your digital assets, you have to decide you trust this person. And if you find out they're accessing it improperly, as I accessed your email account yesterday, <laughs> then then you don't trust me anymore. Although so th should, those issues sort right. of transcend Although digital the, or not. Highlight the monitoring part, you know, even in non-digital assets. So, so Elizabeth, you had mentioned when people are trying to do it, one of the reasons they'd want to do it is to preserve a memory. That seems non-financial. I probably know what that means, I guess. But what does preserving a memory mean? Well, I think a good example is that um, I have a one-year-old son. I've taken thousands of photos of him and I have printed maybe one of those photos to put in my office. The other 999 photos are all in the iCloud. And, um, and while I've sent them out every once in a while, 
I think if something were to happen to me, I know um, his grandparents and his father would would very much want to have those photographs. And and I think photographs, videos, those memories are the um, are the touchy feely part of digital assets that um, since people don't tend to print photos anymore, that those would be the the top priority. Um, for example, there was a there was a case uh, ten years ago with a service member in Iraq who passed away. He only had a Yahoo account, and on that account were all his correspondence uh, to his family members, his pictures, his memories, and this was the only uh, way to access that information. And that I think for the family members was not about the financial; it was about the personal memories. Uh, Putnam, are there other things that that you are trying to that there may be reasons why you'd want access or not want access? We've now talked about two financial, and we've talked about preserving memories. Are there other things on there that we would like to give access to or not that we should be thinking about? I, I think one thing that comes to mind is professional information. I practice in a small law firm with a very small team. Uh, I have tremendous amounts of really precious client information in my email accounts. Nobody knows how to get into them except me. <laughs> you know, that could be a disaster if something happened to me. There are also people, I think, who who run maybe small businesses, the people Absolutely. with, you know, shops on eBay or the people who make money from their own websites uh, or blogs or writing, uh, mm -hmm. lots of professional areas where there are digital assets that someone may need access to yeah. at some point. These issues come up in estate planning. I have uh, a client, for example, who runs a very successful small business from his basement. He sells bobbleheads all over the world. <laughs> They're manufactured in China. You have no idea how many people buy bobbleheads. <laughs> Apparently he, in China. <laughs> he also collects domain names and has a, a large investment in domain names. Uh, in planning his estate, his wife knows nothing about this. And so we've appointed... A, a digital asset manager in, in his will uh, and, you know, use powers of attorney and things to provide access. Does it work? I don't know, but what that, can we do? We'll That's out. actually a great question. I was, it, it, so you could, could you do, so we talked about, Elizabeth mentioned you could use consent and consent seems to make a lot of sense. That mm -hmm. sounds like kind of what you're doing. Absolutely. Can you appoint an agent kind of like you would a healthcare agent to say through a power of attorney, I generically authorize ABC to give or not give consent to access to my digital assets. Is that a doable thing? Yes. I think the the default, at least with the Revised Uniform Act, is that a power given to an agent while you're living, um, either either while you're incapacitated or capacitated, <laughs> is, um, is express, express consent is going to be honored um, for an agent for both the content and for the other digital asset. And could you separate that out? Could you say in, a, in an agency kind of thing, whereas on the, on the tool, you might not able to do that. For an agency, you can say, yes, I authorize financial to so-and-so, so but no, not to, not to my personal. I only authorize that to my business partner or something like that. Is that a doable thing through an agency? Yes. And I think that's yeah. what's great about estate planning documents is that you're able to be a little bit more specific about what you want. And content is something that requires express consent, whereas other digital assets, which would include the photos or the catalog that we talked about, the two from subject, is permitted under the grant of general authority that you just give an agent under a general power of attorney. So when does you say it, express consent, what does that mean? That would mean express, I, I believe, expressly identifying the account who the person is and that you 
want that person to have access to content. And that's a defined term um, under the Uniform Act. So hopefully we will all be on the same page with, with what that means. Does it make a difference whether your digital assets are only stored in the cloud or perhaps they're also available on backup devices you know, in your home office? I think it does. I, I think that a well-drafted estate planning document, a power of attorney, and a will should not only give access to digital assets, but also give access to the devices that are necessarily used to acquire the digital information. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I agree. And I think that the what's different about when it's stored on a tangible device in your home, that's not governed by that term of service agreement that we worry about. With so the in other words, we go the yeah. exact opposite way. If you are whatever the right word is smart or not smart enough to to allow it unprotected unpassword protected on your computer and you then it's it's free game even if you tried to protect it with the agreement with the terms of service correct and could you put something in there where the physical drive the physical thumb drive has to be stored in a certain location because i mean those can get put in a drawer like you said a desk drawer left in the car, I mean, anywhere. Could you put something in there that says these have to be in maybe a safety deposit box or? You guys, you guys frighten me. You know, <laughs> my clients, my clients live different than you guys do. You know, I, I can't get them to list accounts and, and list locations. And besides, people pick stuff up and they move it from here to there. At least my clients do. And so. executors have the ability to go through your clothing and your jewelry. Sure. And so for, for the tangible storage, I think they have the normal fiduciary role of stepping into the shoes. And so I think you have to make it as easy as possible for them to do that. You know, when when I was younger, you know, my estate administration checklist starts with change the locks, turn off the subscriptions, you know, stop the magazines. But identify the accounts and identify the digital assets is right now really up there on my checklist. And there's some accounts now that can remain totally anonymous, where even if you hire somebody to track out like i don't know if you guys have heard of the term bitcoin but those are mm -hmm. digital currency those are designed to be anonymous so right. i mean i would imagine those will start coming up in issues like estate planning where you can store a lot of money in those accounts and it can be very very difficult to get access to right and you mentioned you know the old days and ending magazine subscriptions that kind of thing um back in the day you know you could simply collect someone's mail for a month and you would know where all of their financial accounts were. Right, and now an executor can go into a home and there are no bank statements. There are no records at all. So there can be a long delay until you get access to the content of your this is... emails and figure out where the accounts are. And I've read of a, a case recently, an estate case, where uh, a man had his income automatically deposited, you know, his social security and so forth, and his mortgage payments were automatically taken out. Mm -hmm. Well, he passed away, social security cut off his income. Meanwhile, no one knew where his mortgage account was and the mortgage payment was being made from his account. His account ran dry because no more income was coming in. And next thing you know, we're in a foreclosure situation. And now beneficiaries are all upset because this wasn't taken care of. The executor had no idea this is Where exactly, to even start? This is exactly why I, I tell people, put it on paper, put it where it can be found, or tell somebody in your family where it can be found. And if you're the executor, find that piece of paper. I mean, it's just got to be done quickly. So, so I have my, my, my question is, what exactly is a magazine subscription? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, let's, we're, we're nearing the end. Uh, tell us, so we you, you, you 
several of you have mentioned the concept of estate planning documents. Tell us what kind of documents we can use and what we as humans using estate planning documents should be thinking about. Button, why don't you start? I use foundational documents. I think a general power of attorney is is an absolute, you know, I, I like to pick the low-hanging fruit. A general power of attorney is low-hanging fruit to me, and that should have a provision in it, I believe, that generally authorizes the agent to access not only digital assets, but also digital devices to get to the digital assets. Do you like in to a have will? a trigger? Like it has to be incapacitated or only if you ask me and I say, you know, or something like I don't, that. I don't like to, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, you can do a springing uh, power of uh, attorney uh, that requires you to prove that somebody is incapacitated, but you have to assemble a family committee or go see a doctor and get the doctor to sign an affidavit. When's the last time you did that? I think the, the key is to select agents who you trust implicitly and give them power today, here, now, to act when they need to. Elizabeth, because what are some other ones? You never know. Well, then, then you get into more of the testamentary documents, which apply after, you're, after you pass away. And those would be a, a will or, and sometimes trusts um, mm -hmm. that provide, uh, that name a fiduciary, an executor or a trustee who would then have access to your accounts. And we're, our trend is to, our, our default language is to consent to the access. And we try to talk about consent to access um, is different from consent to content. And we're including the ability to access content, but it's something that we think that people should think about whether they want that content accessible to their fiduciary. A lot of assets in today's world don't pass under a will. They are beneficiary designations or joint accounts like on 401ks or brokerage accounts or anything else. Are financial institutions, including in their terms of, 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 of whatever they call it, terms of, of compliance, are they including defaults that talk about if the account holder dies, then ABC could get access? Or is that something that's not even being considered? I think they're all... I not all, but I mean, most of them are considering it. I mean, at the end of the day, they're a bank and you go about getting access to those accounts the same way you would a, a checking account or a savings account where you prove that you're who you say you are and that you're this authorized individual. And then they go about getting you access different ways. Uh, they'll reset a password or get you your own account, which has access to um, the information you need. So um, they go about it differently, but I think most of them do have some terminology in there about it. Okay, we're nearing the end of the show. So as I promised before we were on air, I'm going to ask each of you, when, uh, somewhat briefly, tell us your most colorful or interesting digital digital assets, either success or horror story. Elizabeth, let's start with you. Oh, goodness. I think my, my cautionary tale would be about using your... Um, your work email as your primary email. Uh, we had a decedent who passed away as an employee of a hospital, and he used that account as as for all of his financial and personal memories, and that hospital refused to allow access. And they had every right to because of the um, the confidential information that was included in that email that, that Putnam mentioned. And because of those concerns, we were unable to find a lot of information that we w would have been useful, including personal communication, bank accounts, that we had to go through um, a different 
process that would have been easier if he had maintained perhaps a personal email address. And just a reminder to everybody, your employer owns your email. You do not unless you have a separate agreement. And it's not covered by this Uniform Act. It's explicitly um, uh, an explicit exemption. Jim? I have probably a lot of stories, um, but... I guess a funny story, uh, a project I was working on this uh, from California originally, myself and another technician were working late on a weekend in a server room that had some rat problems. Um, and it's six o'clock on a Saturday, we're both pretty tired and we were copying a large amount of data from one digital asset to another. And during the middle of the copy, a rat trap snapped on the power cord of the di- disk we were copying to. So that was pretty pretty interesting. Um, and that was, you know, 10 years ago when transferring that amount of data took hours, not minutes. So it was um, disappointing to say the least. <laughs> Putnam. I, I don't think I have one that, that is fit for consumption at least. <laughs> then let's start with you. And we're now at the end of the show. And Putnam, tell us how, if our listeners want to contact you and learn more, um, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, through my website, it's www.lipscombjohnson.com. Jim Doherty, uh, you can reach me by email, uh, jim.doherty, D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y, at btcpa.net. And Elizabeth Faced, uh, you can reach me at elizabeth.faced, it's F as in Frank, A-I, S as in Sam, T as in Tom, at G, or at Sutherland.com. So we're wrapping up our show. I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Elizabeth Face with Sutherland, Putnam Smith with Lipscomb Johnson, and Jim Doherty with Bennett Thrasher. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.